Warren Buffett as like is a very trite thing that that people talk about when they talk about this topic is that Warren Buffett made a bet with the top 10 hedge funds which employ the smartest people on earth pay them hundreds of thousands of dollars a year to sit in a room for 100 hours a week and trade stocks these people went like won math competitions in China <laughs> went to MIT PhDs absolute geniuses like don't know how to talk to people because they're that smart they just like are on a different level playing field as we are that's who you're competing with and they still didn't just beat just clicking two buttons and buying the S&P 500 and so for that reason everyone I mean everyone thinks they're smarter than everyone else but like you're not hello everyone you may have noticed that our page looks a little different and before we start this episode we wanted to address that Austin and I have been thinking about changing the name of our podcast for a little bit of time now because we wanted a name that relates to our mission. Our goal on this show is to share success stories so that you can use them as resources and proof to write your own. With that in mind, we changed the name of our show to Proof of Concept. We'd love to hear any feedback you have on the new name, so send us a DM on our new Instagram at Proof of Concept Official. Thank you and enjoy. This week on Proof of Concept, we had seasoned real estate investor, fellow podcast host, UIUC alum and previous guest Jacob Swinney make a return to the show. Last time we had Jacob on, we explored some unique ways to break out of your frame. While Jacob was in college, he lived for free and made over $60,000. So in this episode, we're switching gears a little bit to talk about how earning money outside the usual 9-to-5 job can be important, how making enough money for yourself is extremely valuable, and Jacob's insights on different financial securities. We wanted to add that a lot of you guys are listening but aren't following us. If you want to be notified about our weekly episodes, give us a follow. Also, to help boost us in the search engine rankings and help more young go-getters like yourself discover this community, taking the time to leave a review goes a long way. But now, welcome our friend Jacob Sweeney. We're about to have a conversation about how to make money. We think it's only appropriate. We explain how you make how me, how you made yours at such a young age. A little bit of context. How old are you? Twenty four. Twenty four. Twenty four. Um, so on the top of your uh, X bio or Twitter bio, or whatever we want to call it, uh, there's a thread that begins with "I made sixty k and lived for free for two years while attending college." So walk us through those thread of actions that got you to that place. So I guess to start, where did you get that initial capital that you began investing? So I started in high school with my dad we started a real estate company so we started doing flips one summer like i think it was my sophomore year of high school my dad bought a house because we had gone to some like real estate seminar and basically he bought a house for like 20k and we spent all summer redoing it like watching youtube videos and like rewiring outlets literally doing everything and i get up there and my dad wake me up at like 6 30 in the morning go over there work till like three o'clock in the afternoon i'd walk over to the school to go to football practice walk back after football practice work till like seven eight at night go home some nights we'd be there till like 2 a.m like because my dad's really particular about if there's a job that's we're working on we have to finish it before we can go home and sometimes we'd be like wiring in the basement and you can't like leave exposed wires out so i'd be there like 2 a.m like falling asleep like standing on a bucket wiring something <laughs> and i hated it but we kept doing that and I started to enjoy it a little bit more. Um, the reason I hated it is because I was working long hours, first of all. And second of all, my dad was obsessed with me learning delayed gratification. So he wasn't going to pay me. 
So I got zero dollars for like working that whole summer. <laughs> He's like, when I sell the house, I'll give you a thousand bucks. And so I ended up working like a hundred, well, more than a hundred hours, like probably like two, three hundred hours that summer yeah. and made like a thousand bucks, like six months later. <laughs> so <laughs> I was like, this is terrible. And I hate this. And I went out. So we, he started paying me like 10 bucks an hour on our next like couple flips. And then it came time to like apply for colleges and at school I went to, like, it wasn't very common. People went to college. So I was like, ah, I probably won't go to college. Um, but my parents were obsessed. With, like I had to go to college. So I was like, okay, well, I don't want to pay for it because I was like looking at the prices and university of Illinois was ended up being like 120 grand for yeah. like, yeah. just, just for the classes, not even including like living expenses. I wouldn't be making any money. So I like saw that and it seemed like a terrible financial decision for me to spend 120 grand plus living expenses minus the fact that I would not be making any money on the back end working a job unless I did some like side thing, which, um, we'll get into, but so basically I was like, this is a terrible financial decision. So how can I pay for college? I could either like get a scholarship and go to some probably like kind of garbage school because I mean the high school I went to, there's like really no opportunities for good scholarships. I could probably got one to like some D3 school, but I thought the learning opportunities there were pretty low. And so it just didn't seem like a financially responsible decision. So my junior year going into senior year of high school, I joined the national guard because they would pay for hundred percent of college. Um, and then they also pay like a stipend every month. So I took a year off between senior year of high school, freshman year of college, worked in like on an army base for like a, eight months, came back, worked in a factory for six months, saved basically all that money, came to college, met a friend and we're sitting down at breakfast, like two weeks into knowing each other. And we're like, I was like, well, I've been thinking about like maybe buying a house and renting out some people so that I can like save money on rent. Um, going into like, you had to live in the dorms freshman year. So I did that after that. I was like, I don't want to pay for rent for the next three, four years. So I was like, all right, I'm gonna buy a house. He's like, Oh, I'll, I'll join you. I was like, sure. He's like, yeah, my mom's a realtor. She'll help us find one. Like wow. oh, two weeks later, we're looking at houses together. <laughs> know this kid for like a month total. <laughs> We end up looking for houses. We find one, ugliest house on the street. Um, we hated pretty much everything about it except for the price. Um, so we ended up buying that, um, and I spent the next two and a half years renovating it, basically little by little. I spent like a whole summer, that winter break, doing it like full time, so that we could get people moved in. We moved like three or four people in, and throughout the period of living there, we had a bunch of different roommates that paid us rent. Um, paid for all the expenses, paid for, um, you know, the taxes, insurance, everything, and a little bit more. And that funded, like, our renovations, ended up selling it. The market went up, like, a ton. So we made, like, two and a half X on our money, which was uh, pretty great. And then, I mean, I also lived for free, if you consider that as well. That also saved me a bunch of money, like, you know, eight, nine hundred bucks a month for two and a half years, three years. Yeah. When did yeah. you, you sell it? Like, right after you graduated? Right before senior year. Oh, okay. So I lived on campus senior year. Okay. okay. And then that capital then allowed you to go into more properties that you have since gone into, right? Mm -hmm. And one of them is with Aiden, right? Correct, yeah. Yeah, so what did, what did that look like? And I guess how did that, because any partnership or going in on a deal together, obviously someone has to initiate it. And, like, how did that, like, idea come about? So basically, like, the plan from the beginning was to invest a bunch into real estate excuse me, and build up a portfolio and then like work a job and then funnel that extra capital into building a portfolio until eventually that portfolio covered all my living expenses and then go full time into building that portfolio long term. Um, so that first house was like 
uh, catalyst for that is the plan. So I was planning on investing. I looked at a bunch of places um, during that time. I couldn't really get a loan because I was like 19 years old and so nobody loaned me money. So I had to pay cash for, for properties. And I looked at a couple that looking back on them now, like one of them was a, a duplex that they were selling for like 200 and it's probably worth like 350 now. <laughs> and th- they've done nothing to it. And I would have uh-huh. put some money into it. Yeah. It'd probably be worth like 400 now. So I'm like kicking myself for not starting earlier. So like if anyone listening, if you have like, something that works and it's like makes money like just do it and <laughs> just keep doing it yeah. um but i was like looking at the market and i'm like okay things look overvalued which looking back now like things have almost gone up like 30 45 50 yeah. percent since then so inside is 2020 though exactly um but to answer your question uh that was the plan the whole time so like to take that money and invest further and i had a little bit of other money from other things i'd done um getting to that point so i had some money set aside so basically after selling that, I sat on it for like a year, just waiting for a right opportunity. I like was looking at the market, waiting for something to pop up, was building connections with people like I, uh, like a debt lender, um, people that were selling, buying and selling real estate in the area. And I ended up getting connected with a guy who owned a property. Um, it was a little fourplex and he said he wanted to sell it. Hey, I'm looking to buy. And next thing you know, um, we were buying it. So I was living with Aiden at the time and I kind of mentioned oh, yeah, that like, Austin, right? yeah. So I'd kind of mentioned, yeah, I'm like looking to buy this property. He's like, Oh, I've, I've thought about some like doing real estate. And I personally like having partners, um, for a couple reasons. And so I was like, I hate having partners, bro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. Oh, sorry. Me sorry. Too. Uh, no, I, I personally like having yeah. partners, yeah. Um, especially in real estate, because it's such a capital intensive business that say I have like a hundred grand to invest, right? I can basically buy like $500,000 worth of assets with that. If I have a hundred thousand dollars and I go 50, 50 with someone, now we have a million dollars of assets worth that we can buy. Um, if we're using 20% leverage, which basically means we can, have some scale in our portfolio so we can buy more units which gives us safety margin of safety if you know something goes wrong in one property you know if we have a couple other properties we can like cover some of those costs a lot better than we could if it was just like just that one property and we had like say a vacancy for three months like we have no revenue or income coming in so having some diversification of our assets since we're like investing together we can multiply that so that's like one of the the main reasons the other is just in terms of actually doing like work on the properties, having, you know, a property manager, the more properties you have, the cheaper it's going to be. And so you kind of get this scale, this with scale, you kind of can gain some operational efficiencies that are better. That's why one of the reasons why I like having partners also, it's just nice, like talking through decisions with someone else. Yeah. It's not like solely on you to make the decision. And like in the past, every real estate, uh, like, deal I've done and I've done it with a partner I've been the more like real estate specific focused person and they've mm-hmm. been like more of the capital um but it's still nice to have someone else to like to yeah. talk through those decisions with you what do you I would I would just want to ask one one more question what do you think about going into deals with like maybe your friends because I know they talk about a lot of biz like in business right there is this debate of whether or not you whether or not it's a good or bad idea to start a business with a friend because what if it goes south, things could go bad, and then what if you ruin the friendship, right? But at the same time, there's a lot of them that have been success stories as well, just like so far with like you and Aiden. But what do you think, or like what are some, 
I guess some principles that come into your head when it comes to that inner dialogue of like, should I go into like um, a deal with my friend? I'd rather go in with a friend than with a stranger personally, um, because I've like had that time of being a friend to prior vet them as a person. So I know that like they're a good person. They're not going to try and screw me or something. <laughs> Um, because if it's just some rando off the street, like the likelihood of them being a person that is going to screw you is much higher just statistically because I haven't taken the time to learn if I trust them or not. Yeah. Right. So that's number one. Um, number two, there will always be conflict within a partnership because, you know, people aren't aligned on everything. And that's like I said, that's a good thing because you have difference of opinions in terms of making decisions. Um, so we had one decision that we were trying to make when it came to the first property with my partner at the time. And I felt very strongly about one way and he felt very strongly about the other way. And so coming to a conclusion about making that decision, it was like down to like 10 to 15 grand of like, if we do it or not. And I said, we should do it. He said, we shouldn't do it. And we, I mean, it was a conflict and going through that conflict and making that decision as friends was much easier than it would be with a strict business partner because like our friendship was more important yeah. than like some 10 grand yeah. decision. Right. So like it makes the decision easier at the end of the day. Yeah. I think I, one thing we've also noticed is like, you kind of know your friend's strengths and weaknesses to begin with. And it kind of helps to, um, like specialize what each person is going to do. It's also easier to treat them outside of that role too. Yeah. As yeah. Well. Um, but one thing I want to touch on is, so you've mentioned, right. That you've made some money outside of regular employment, right. Not doing nine to five jobs, whatever it might be like the traditional way of making money. Um, but you mentioned, we, we were listening to another podcast that you had, um, and you mentioned like the importance of having your own money and how important it is to you to be able to have the money that you make yourself to be able to spend on whatever you need or like when you're older, financially afford medical things or nursing home or whatever it might be. Um, so can you talk a little bit about like when you realized like that was really important to you and you needed to kind of do more with your money than just the traditional job that's a good question it's hard to to put a finger on the exact time when like it wasn't like a light bulb moment for me it was something that like just came about over time my dad was always very particular about teaching me uh like the power of compounding um he never took a step farther to be like okay how do you actually do that he always just he would he had this excel sheet that he would show me he's like well if you have one thousand now and over 20 years at 8%, you'd have this much. If you have at 10 years, you only have this Those much. Those retirement calculators. And I was like, cool, man. That sounds awesome. But like, and that was that, right? So I had, like, had this in the back of my mind kind of, but I never knew what to do with that. Like, I didn't know you could just like, and back when I was in high school, you couldn't just like open a Robinhood account and like throw some money in and right. like, oh, I'm investing. So it wasn't accessible to me. So I kind of understood that. And then my dad also talked about like, you know, the delayed gratification with like working on a house for free for a whole summer and like making like $3 an hour. Like those (laughs) things, those skills that he gave me then at that time, like definitely are still prevalent in my life today, but it wasn't like the application of that didn't come till later. Um, And so I've, I read like Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I read some other books and like that one summer where I was working on the house, I worked on it alone because my buddy had like, to work for a stepdad the whole summer. So I was just like literally at a house alone all summer working on it. And so I just spent all the time like listening to audiobooks and that kind of shaped like my beginning into um no, I guess personal finance. I took a, a personal finance course in the army that was like through Dave Ramsey if you know who that is. <laughs> I have a lot of thoughts. mixed opinions on that, but it was definitely a start for me and so it's just like those things constantly like growing and building those 
ideas surrounding it i think heads up over time yeah well we, we were gonna we were gonna talk a little bit about financial instruments which ones you use and why you use them but i think to contextualize that because they're all going to be whether or not you use them yeah right and really understand that i think it's best for us to go over where you want to be because the decisions you make and what investments you choose are off of where you want to be right so i guess what is your financial north star and where do you want to be at the end of the day do you want to live kind of just mortgage just have like house in the suburbs whatever it may be or do you want to generate a lot more money and also why would you want it to generate more money yeah i think north star wise i think of it a little bit more broken down like more short-term goals I don't know where I want to be when I'm 60, like having a hundred million dollars versus having $5 million really doesn't register for me in terms of knowing the difference between those two. Like I understand like logically what the difference is, but like, I don't know what I'm going to want when I'm 60. Right. What I do know is like in all likelihood, a couple extra zeros in the bank, like it's not going to matter that much um, because money's just a tool and it should be looked at that way instead of like the Holy grail of like what actually matters. So it's all just a tool to get to what you actually want. Um, but like I said, I think of it more in short-term chunks. So like right now, the most important focus is like financial freedom, which basically is like you were saying earlier, just not having to depend on anyone else for anything, whether that's a boss, um, anything, right? So like, I don't want to have to work a job I hate for someone I hate because I need the paycheck. I don't want like, say I have a mortgage due. I have, you know, I have to eat, I have to provide for my family in some capacity, um, I don't want to have to depend on someone else for that. And I want to have the optionality to, to do whatever I need to do. So that's the first step. The second step goes a little bit past like the technical freedom of just like having the ability to do what I want to do. It's actually having the ability to do like the actual things I want to do. So that might be traveling around the world. That might be like buying the nice car I want to buy. That might be investing in the certain locations that I think could use the investment. For example, like um, in the, the nonprofit that my dad and I run. So like having the optionality and freedom to actually invest and do the things that I want to do, that's like the next step. After that, like it doesn't make sense realistically to like sit on a beach for the rest of your life and just like do nothing. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's just not very fulfilling in my opinion. <laughs> I want to have the option to do that if I do so choose, but in all likelihood, the more likely option that's going to happen is that I keep working. And at that point, it's not because you know, I need the extra hundred grand or whatever that I'm working for that year. It's not that I need to do the extra deal. It's because I want to do it. And because it's like the love of the game to do it. Yeah. It's just having the optionality to do that. Right. And so I think that's a much more fulfilling way to live. And also, I mean, we could go on for hours about why I think it's like morally important that you actually <laughs> take care of yourself right. um, as your own sovereign individual and like not, <laughs> but that's besides the point. I could go on for, for hours about that. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, those are a lot of good points. I think just the option to do whatever you want is very powerful at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, that That's something that I, like, I was, what was I watching? I think it was, like, an Instagram reel this morning, and it was, like, this. It was like the same thing. It was, like, bosses or, like, companies use your salary as, like, leverage to keep you to do something that you hate. And I was, like, that's that, that kind of lines up with what you said because, I mean, a lot of people hate their jobs, but they're only there because – they think it's the only way that they're going to be able to live their day-to-day lives and pay like the next bill yeah. or put food on the table. But it's yeah, a- it's not even just that, like, right. Like I'm not sovereign anymore. Once I have to listen to 
xyz person right yeah. it's not even that just that i have to be there nine to five right like yeah i can't be wherever i want to be do what i want like if my kid has some baseball game and I have to work like i can't go that's one thing but also i can't say whatever i want to say right right because like i could be fired like that uh and that's just like not the place where i want to be where i have to depend on someone else saying what i can and can't do i want to have like be a sovereign person that i can do whatever it is i want to do and like if i say something that like tomorrow right now it's okay for me to say but tomorrow it's not okay for me to say and i still said it because i truly believe that now i lost my job and like can't provide for my family i just don't want to live in like that type of type of way if i don't have to yeah that's always that's like one of my biggest motivators too i just want to be able to think freely and i think it kind of takes me back a little little short story i worked at like mariato's for like a full summer a couple years ago and i felt myself like slowly drifting into that and I went back the next summer and when I was having those same conversations with my boss, cause I, I kind of knew of other stuff I could do. I had other jobs that were lined up and when they would like yell at, like yell at me or like say, say whatever they want to me, I just didn't hit the same. Like it didn't hurt me anymore. Cause I'm like, I could go, like I could go do something else. Like I'm not taking this personal anymore and being able to have that option to just feel like not feel as personally attacked also it was like, something that I appreciated from a little bit more financial just freedom and options as well. 100%. But so, okay, talk about where you are, how you got there, where you want to go, right? So I think it's only appropriate to talk a little bit how you think you're going to get there. So we're going to go through some financial instruments that we're going to touch on a little bit, stocks, bonds, uh, mutual funds, all lined up. But I guess we'll start with stocks, day trading. What are your what are your thoughts <laughs> on that way of making money? Whether it's long term holds, whether it's swing trades, whatever it may be. I um, personally detest buying single stocks. Um, oh, also, I'll preface this: this is all this in his opinion. Yeah, this is my opinion. This not financial not... advice for anyone else listening, but I personally very strongly dislike buying personal stocks. Um, I I buy like baskets of stocks so that I can have that diversification because I have zero control over whether Apple does well this quarter or Google does well this quarter. Um, And even just on a time adjusted basis, it just doesn't make sense for me to spend my time valuing stocks when I can just buy all of them. (laughs) (laughs) It makes a lot of sense. Statistically, you're not going to be better even if you did spend hours and hours analyzing these stocks and looking at all the different patterns or whatever, um, buying and selling at the, just the right times. Um, if you have a portfolio that's under a hundred thousand dollars, even if you did beat the market by like a decent margin each year, say a percent or two, the amount of time you have to spend to do that doesn't translate to a dollar amount per hour. That's actually worth your time. And so it just doesn't make sense, in my opinion, to trade single stocks <laughs> unless you're some genius that I am 100% not. Warren Buffett as, like, is a very trite thing that, that people talk about when they talk about this topic, is that Warren Buffett made a bet with the top 10 hedge funds, which employ the smartest people on earth, pay them hundreds of thousands of dollars a year to sit in a room for 100 hours a week and trade stocks these people went like one math competitions in China. <laughs> Me and him are cracking <laughs> went up. Went to Yale, went to MIT, PhDs, 
absolute geniuses like don't know how to talk to people because they're that smart yeah. they just like are on a different level playing field as we are that's who you're competing with and they still didn't just beat just clicking two buttons and buying the s&p 500 and so for that reason everyone i mean everyone thinks they're smarter than everyone else but like you're not uh you might be marginally but that's not going to correlate to like actually making a tangible difference in terms of your like monetary dollars that you're making in the market so for in terms of stocks I think it's ridiculous to buy single stocks. Um, I just buy, you know, the SP 500. I buy emerging stock funds. I buy ETFs that are low cost. So they cost like 1% or 0.01%, like pennies on the dollar to invest in. And uh, they don't trade, so I don't have to pay taxes on that. It's just like the best, the best option. By and far. then you just like tap put your phone down and then yeah. don't worry about it you don't even have to you can set it up so it does it automatically every month and you yeah. literally never have to see it and it just goes away it's in there just making and money weren't yeah. you uh were you also isn't wasn't there also a study that was done that like people that made the most off their trading accounts and it's the people that had almost like forgotten the password to yeah. those accounts like the, the they like did a uh basically like every a person that logged in x amount of times versus and the person <laughs> that logged in the least amount of times made the most amount of money like 100 percent of the time so just buying and forgetting about it um, is a, a very viable strategy when it comes to buying stocks. You're not going to beat the market. Like you think, oh, it's, it's overvalued now. You sell and then like the next year or the next three days, it goes up 70% and you lost. <laughs> like if you missed out on 18 trading days in the last like three years or something, you'd miss out on like over half the gains. And, and it's just like if you just sold it just one day early, you lost like 30% gains. Yeah. So it's like covid crashes the market and you're like oh it's it's gonna go down more i gotta take it out early take it out and then it goes up like 90 percent. yeah you missed out so buying and selling and trading stocks like you're, you're not a genius so yeah. don't act like one in reality i feel like most people who are buying and selling stocks anyways that are doing it like managing their own portfolio obviously have another job they're probably just checking on their lunch break and like that's you're, you're not, not you're not gonna beat the uh the math wizards <laughs> you're not gonna beat the the, the dude that's staring at a screen for 100 hours a week yeah you're not gonna win yeah they're like up at the crack of dawn looking at, yeah, you're not going to beat them. Yeah. And, and also, it's literally a player versus player game. Like it's, you're str- <laughs> strictly competing against them. And like if, they're stealing your money. If you, uh, if you do make money off of stocks, most likely you would have still made money off of mutual funds, right? Just because the majority of time stocks go up is just when the market's going up, right? Is that true? Yes and no. I don't like mutual funds personally. Okay. I wouldn't buy a mutual fund. Oh, not the difference. My, my, in a, I meant index funds. Yeah, my the bad, difference between mutual fund and index fund is basically that a mutual fund is they have some manager that manages what they buy and sell, and an index just tracks like a certain basket of stocks. And so, like the SP 500 is like the 500 biggest companies. Mutual fund is like Bob, whoever <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. decides yeah. that we need to buy this and we need to sell that and buy this. And usually, they have some criteria based on how much por- like of their portfolio they have allocated to what and what and what. The problem with that is you're paying them like 1% to 3%, which like over a long term, like even if they beat the market by 1% each year, you're still losing 2% because you're paying them 3%. So it's like if you're making 9% and the market makes 8 you're actually taking home 7 mm-hmm. So you're actually making worse off, even if you beat the market every single year, which doesn't happen. And secondly, since you're trading, buying and selling, you have tax liabilities for that. And so if you have a 30% tax liability on your active income, if they sell it in closer than a year say you have paid 30 percent on your taxes that's a 30 percent loss over and over and over and you lose out on all that compounding that you would get on tax-free so it's just not a good strategy in my opinion yeah i i would agree mutual funds just seem 
it just doesn't make much logical sense. But I mean, as you're talking about index and ETFs, is that yeah. where the majority of is that where the majority of it makes sense at this age? Okay, so I'll, for I'll backstep. You. I'll backstep and give you like an overview of my portfolio, just so mm-hmm. it makes sense for someone listening. I have about fifty percent of my money in um, of my liquid money in stocks, and then I have about fifty percent of it in real estate, in equity in real estate, and then I have that's, that's like my liquid, and then I have money set aside for my four hundred one k IRA tax advantage money, and that's like just enough money to make the money I need to retire comfortably, um, which is important to do the math for. And then I have like some allocation towards cash for like the next deal that comes up basically. So the stock portfolio is basically like my longer term cash balance that I want to use to invest into real estate. So my goal scenario is to have like all of that into real estate eventually. And then like most of my stocks being in retirement accounts. And I still think there's, it's important to have some allocation to the stock market, not just real estate. So I will keep some there. And then anything in cash I hold in like money market funds, which make like a little bit less than treasuries basically. Okay. So that's how I have my strategy set up. There's a, I feel like it almost parallels. There's this one, one piece of advice. I think it was something like iced coffee hour, like Graham Stephan and somebody else, but they were talking about a rule or maybe it was Dave. I don't remember, but they were talking about you, your investment portfolio. This is just one perspective on it should reflect where the, where your intelligence is. So if you're somebody that has like the majority of your knowledge is in real estate, the majority of your investment should also be in real estate. And that was just one perspective to it. And obviously there's a ton of ways you could qualify that because, you know, for obvious reasons. Um, but do you think, how true do you think that statement is or how much do you apply that to your, your portfolio? I think there's definitely some truth to that. I think it is important to have number one diversification Number two, managing your risk is also extremely important. And then number three is, yeah, you want to chase higher yields while you're managing that risk, right? So like, in I believe very, very strongly that in private markets, you can have greatly higher returns than you could in public markets. Every single person that's listening to this right now can in five minutes invest into any stock they want to invest into. You can download Robinhood app, connect your bank account and throw however much money you want to into any stock. Right. And all the information that's that stock, the money, that stock, the cost of it is based off of is off of the information that's given to everyone the same amount because it's not allowed to insider trade. If you do, you go to jail unless you're in Congress, I guess. <laughs> um, whereas in private markets, the information that everyone has is not the same. And if I have more information than you do, I can make more informed decisions than you can, and it's not illegal. You're allowed to insider trade. If I have a buddy that owns a company that's going to sell it, they don't have to go post it on everywhere. I can buy it just like that. So it's like legal insider trading. So number one, you can make more money like that. And then there's just opportunities in private markets that can never be found in public markets without taking insane amounts of risk. So I can make, uh, like, for example, I'll give you an example of a buddy of mine that bought a business for basically 1x EBITDA. Grew it in 20% in the first year. Second year, planned to go another 40%. That's in the first year, 120% return. Literally impossible yeah. to get in private mar- in public markets because everyone has the same information. And the only way you will get that 
is by taking either number one insane amounts of leverage or number two you just get extremely lucky and the likelihood of you getting extremely lucky with enough money to make it actually worthwhile controlling your risk it's not going to make a big difference because like if it's I mean, no single stock should be greater than like five to ten percent of your portfolio. Say five percent of your portfolio, it's a hundred percent return. But if it's like you're investing in your own business, like that, you can put a lot more than five percent and still be safe because you have control over that investment. So private markets are like a much, much better place to have your money. The only problem with that is deal flow. Like I have a couple ways to solve deal flow personally. Um, but actually, I don't no, how here, we talk about that. Well, actually, can we go down that a little bit? Deal flow. So well, what exactly is deal flow? I mean, I feel like I could intuitively, but what? so for, for that example, basically in a public market, deal flow for everyone is the exact same, right? Cause I can look on my screen at any brokerage account and see all the same, the same stocks that you can, you can yeah, buy. Yeah. Right. So that's, we all have the same deal flow. So for that reason, we all have the same opportunities to buy and sell different stocks. Right. I mean, there's some complex financial instruments that like are only available to certain people. Like for example, like, taking extra leverage margin maybe short selling those are different things but like in, in all reality our deal flows are the exact same private markets if i have built myself as a person in a certain market that buys say say i'm someone that buys dental practices and i roll up dental practices so i keep buying dental practices the more i buy dental practices the more people are going to know me as the person that buys dental practices and so the likelihood of me getting a deal from someone that buy, is selling a dental practice is much higher than like some rando off the street that decides one day they want to buy a dental practice. So that'd be my deal flow. So my deal flow would be higher than someone else. And because of that, I have a better opportunity for finding good deals because I have more deals I can look at, right? So if it's say it's a real estate market, if I'm going to buy a house just off the multiple listing service, which everyone has access to, my deal flow is the same as everyone else. If I'm getting a property from someone that I know personally is going to sell me off market, that's added deal flow to my strategy. And so deal flow is a very important piece of the puzzle when it comes to private investing because those opportunities that are actually home runs are like needle and haystack. So you have to look through a lot of deals in order to find the right one. Has that been something that like you've been able to take advantage of yet in your real estate portfolio? Um, in some capacity, yeah. Like I said, the first property I bought with Aiden was um, an off-market deal. Um, so that is a little bit more... Um, I guess you would consider it increase for my deal flow, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yes. um, but I'm kind of building a community of people that work in uh, financial instruments and invest and are operators. And uh, that's kind of my way of solving deal flow to some extent. You guys heard of the Patel cartel? I'm a virtue of the story. But like the basic <laughs> premise is that uh, – a guy with the last name Patel came over to the U.S., bought a motel, got it running. Like, he could run it cheaper than, like, his competitor could because he lived at the property. His kids, like, helped him do the work and stuff. So he, like, got it running, ran well, sent some money back to his cousin. His cousin bought, came and bought another motel. And they both pooled their money, sent it to another cousin, another cousin. And then years and years later, they own, like, billions and billions of dollars worth of motels. The Patel people do. People with the last name Patel. And... Now they own like over 50% of all the motels in the U.S. Damn. Um, and that just goes to show that like they've gotten their deal flows set up correctly because number one, they have operators. Number two, they have a way they can run it in a more efficient manner than the next person can. So they can pay a higher price to get the same return, which means they can outbid other people and get more motels. And then they have scale. 
and they have, you know, a group of people that are doing it together. And so I'm kind of building something comparable to that with a, a community I like to call Gelt. So there's like 15 of us now. We're going to like 25 in January. And that's just basically a group of people that are highly ambitious and also believe that financial wealth is a large piece of success and care about that. And so we're kind of building like a little bit of a deal flow based group that can add to like, say there's 50 people in there. All of them find one good deal a year in a private market. That's 50 deals you can choose from any given year. And so that kind of solves their problem because you're vetting the person instead of vetting the actual investment itself. Because if I spend five years knowing your investment strategy, and I know that you're a great operator. You go to buy a business. I know that I can trust you to run that business. Well, like my friend that bought that one business, if he'd asked me for money, I'd give it to him in a heartbeat. Right. So like, yeah, I want I want to talk about this like a little bit more and yeah. just deal flow and how you could establish. I mean, is also a part of that leverage as well. Is that kind of another way of putting it? I guess. Yeah. Like the more leverage you have stacked, the more that these deals are going to come to you. So I know that you're talking about it with the community that you're building for you, but what are some ways someone in college can build like build a, or improve their deal flow and become more aware of these things? And part of it could be community, right? But what are some things that come to your head? I'd say for the average person in college, uh, you're probably not going to have a meaningful sum of money to invest into private markets. And usually one of the barriers to entry in a private market compared to a public market is you can't buy like fractional pieces usually. So like I couldn't go in with a buddy and put like a, a grant into a real estate deal because like the amount of forms and tax liabilities and all different things you have to fill out and make, it's not going to be worth the 1K, right? So like having a hundred people buy a thousand dollars of property is like not worth it. Right. So you're probably not going to have a meaningful sum of money in order for it like to cut the check. Right. I mean, if you're arresting with real estate, private equity, like the minimum amount of money you put in is like 50 grand. Like yeah. it, most people in college just don't have that type of money. Right. So when it comes to deal flow, like do you even need deal flow at that point? Maybe not. But like if you have a long-term view of like, okay, I want to do, dental practice roll-ups. I keep bringing that up. If you want to do, you know, HVAC, you want to buy, buy business in HVAC systems or plumbing or, you know, lawn care, whatever it is, right? Say you want to, you decide this is what I want to do. Maybe I want to do real estate. The best thing you can possibly do is number one, become a thought leader in that industry. So like learn as much as you can about that so that when it comes time to invest, you'll like number one, know what you're doing and not lose all your money. Number two, you'll have people that like can trust you because they know that like, Oh, you're the real estate guy. Like you talk about real estate all the time. Like, yeah, you I'd have, probably, you have a real estate newsletter. I'd probably like, trust you when it comes yeah. to like my money in real estate because I know you're like a real estate guy or whatever it is, right? So that's number one. Number two is like knowing people that are also going to be like kind of like building your own community, right? So like whether that's people in college that like in the next three to five, seven years maybe after graduation will be in places to either number one, invest with you. Number two, give you opportunities. Number three, go through deals, be partners, whatever it is. Building that like, I don't want to call it network, but like group of friends probably yeah. that you can invest with, pool your money with, whatever it is. That's important as well if that's what you want to do. Um, those are probably like the most important things I think for deal flow wise just because, I mean, in college, like the likelihood of you being in like a large investor in private markets is like pretty low. Yeah. Short answer is people, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Kind of set your community up for after when you actually have the money. Yeah, and like me don't be stupid if you have opportunities 
take them. <laughs> if it's good, like if you can, you, okay, you have this investment criteria set up or you're like, I will buy this. Just do it. Like, don't be afraid of, of doing it. And this like, is the time to take the risk, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So if I look back now, I'm kicking myself for all those opportunities I had that I didn't take. Man, like, <laughs> where my life be now? Like, you yeah. know what I mean? Like, so a lot farther ahead than I am now. Not that like I'm upset with that, but it's just knowledge. Like, put that in the back of my mind and realize, okay, going forward, if something makes sense and it's within my buy criteria, I'm gonna buy it. And if I can't buy it with the money I have, I'll find a way to buy it. Right. So there was ways I could have done the things. I was just honestly, I was like, ah, I'm in college. Like, I already got this property. I'm four eleven exam tomorrow. I got all these things going on. Yeah. Like, yeah. I don't want to be doing. I don't know if I can handle that. I definitely could have handled it. <laughs> like, yeah. It was. It was just me being like. A little bit cowardly when it comes to that and that was just like a learning experience for me so yeah talking about risk and opportunity we'll come back to the whole like financial is- instruments we were talking about um i was here like about like investing and like investing your money like when you're young is the time to take the risk like once you're like past 50 like you can't afford to take risky yeah. investments so like what are, where are you about like the lower risk securities like cds and bonds um so for me i'm like a very risk on investor except when it comes to uh, my long-term portfolio. So I kind of have two different portfolios. The long-term portfolio is like the money I need to retire comfortably. Like we said earlier, I think it's like morally reprehensible for you to like not take care of yourself and in place that job on someone else, probably your kids. They don't want to take care of some old dude that's like (laughs) – can't change himself. I got to have diapers. I'm like, no one's to do that. Right. And I don't want to place that financial burden on my kids or anyone else for that matter. So doing the math and saying, all right, they did a bunch of financial simulations basically to say that like, you'll basically never fail if you take 4% of your liquid portfolio a year. So if you li- say you have a million dollars, you can live off 40 grand a year. So you do the math and you say, okay, how much money will I need to live off of when I'm 60, when I'm retired, say it's a hundred grand, say it's 200 grand, say it's 300, whatever it is. So you just do the math and you say, okay, how much money do I need when I retired in order to make that? Well, if it's a hundred grand, that means I need two and a half million dollars invested Cause, cause four... in the stock market. So I can take 4%, which equals, you know, yeah, I see. I see. the basic, the basic premise is if I make 8% a year, give or take, right? So over the long term, making 8%, some years will be more, some years will be less. If you always take 4% of your portfolio, You'll basically never cut into the actual portfolio itself. You'll only be living off the gains of the portfolio. And some years will go up and down, right? So some years you'll have like a loss and you'll still be taking 4%. Some years you have a gain, 4%. So in the long term, it evens out, right? So with that being said, that amount of money I need when I retire is like my safe portfolio. And I basically do the math and say, all right, in an inflation-adjusted stock market, you make 7-ish percent a year. Right. So if I make 8% a year to 10% a year, eight to 10 with minus like a 3% of the inflation number gets to like seven, five to seven. Right. So a five to 7% return over now till I'm retirement age, which for me is probably like 65, maybe till I'm 65. I have to do the math to say, how much money do I need to put aside each year in order at five to 7% return, get that amount of money. So say at two and a half million dollars, I need to put, I don't know, like 200, 300 bucks a month away. All that money is going to win tax advantage accounts so that like Roth IRA, 401k, um, those financial instruments, which basically lower my tax burdens. So I'm not going to pay taxes. 
on those gains. That way I know I'm covered. And like, if everything goes wrong, if I like, you know, make some terrible financial decisions or whatever, and like basically go broke, I at least have that covered and it's in safe, very well diversified funds. So that I'm not worried about that. So that's like that part of the portfolio in terms of low risk. Everything else is like very, very risk on. Um, so I don't like do like CDs. I don't do bonds. Yeah. I actually think like in the long term, 100% stocks is like always better than bonds. Except when you're like about to retire and like you have 100% stocks and then like a crash happens. And, and, and Ron goes screwed, to right? zero. <laughs> yeah. That's terrible. That's so sad for those people. But so that that's like my risk on portfolio. And that risk on portfolio is, you know, stocks, real estate, uh, you know, private market, like I'm investing like some money with a buddy this next year. Um, stuff like that, right? They're very risky investments. Um, but the return on those investments is equal to the amount of risk I'm taking with those investments, right? So like my real estate, I basically won't buy a property if it doesn't make me 20% a year in terms of IRR in a pro forma basis, right? Like obviously like that numbers might not always hit 20% every year, but like if it's not close to a 20% return, I'm not going to do it. And I'm going to go on stocks instead because of the higher risk that real estate offers. So I need to make a higher return for that. And like, if I'm making 20% real estate, like I don't want more money in real estate, Yeah. but I just can't put all my money in real estate because like, that's just not safe. Yeah. If the real estate market crashes, Your I'm going to need some drops. money in. Right, I'm gonna need some money in stocks to like balance that out. So you have to keep a diversification in front of your portfolio into your portfolio. But as of right now, being twenty four, the risk I can take and like come back from is like very, very high. Yeah. So I have a huge risk tolerance and like stomaching that might be hard sometimes, but knowing that in the long term I'll be better off that way. You know, taking leverage on my real estate properties, buying more in private markets, doing things that are quote unquote risky, as long as I can manage that over the long term it'll be much much better in terms of returns if that makes sense no that, yeah, yeah that, that made a, that made a lot of sense there's so much value i'm actually really looking forward to re-listening to all this but okay so we, we st- stopped a little bit at retirement funds iras 401ks yeah talked a little bit about cds bonds just kind of not the time probably never be the time for you Talk, talked about <laughs> someday, stock someday i'll i'll, may, I'll be may, safe may, someday. May, maybe a little oh yeah yeah, or, yeah, when, yeah when you're like 70 and just wanting to like grow <laughs> just give me yeah. my four four or five percent returns. yeah uh, stocks touched on that, but how important is growing your credit at this age and bettering your credit at this age for me personally or for people in general? I guess both a little if, touch. If yours is very a little touch on just the average person and then more importantly for you, I'll say number one, like one of the bigger mistakes I made was not building my credit earlier. Um, it's basically like a way for people to understand if they can trust you when it comes to money. Yeah. Yeah. And so like a lot of people like kind of try to dunk on that and say like, Oh, it doesn't actually matter. It kind of does. Like it's important to like have a good credit and it's really easy to do. So like literally just open a credit card and like put your Spotify on there and set it to auto pay. And then like five years from now you'll have a decent credit score. Yeah. I mean, at least for so me, it's super easy. It's like if I will say if you're someone that's bad, with money and you should know this like you should you should know like am i someone that can be responsible with money or am i someone that needs to have tight constraints around my monetary spending if you're someone that needs tight constraints i understand right it's not for like not everyone's the best in any one area i have things that i'm terrible at and that's okay 
but you have to know that about yourself so that you can put constraints around it so that you don't go off the rails and like end up in credit card debt, which is like the worst thing ever because those thirty percent a year yeah. is the terrible. It's almost sometimes impossible to get out of. So that being said, like you need to be smart about using credit, um, especially if you're someone that knows that you aren't the best when it comes to like maybe you spend a lot of money or you just like, hey, I like that, I'm gonna buy it. <laughs> that's okay. Like I said, it's okay. I'll, I'll figure it out later. Yeah. yeah. Some some people are like that, and that's okay. But like using a debit card in that situation, if you buy it, you don't have the money for it. It won't let you buy it, yeah. and that saves you a lot of heartache that you could have had two months from now when you're like, ah, yeah. did yeah. I really need that extra pair of shoes? Like, So when it comes to a credit card, I would say for most people, the best option to do is to get a credit card with a zero uh, annual fee. That's very important because you're going to have this forever because you never, ever want to cancel it's it. It's very easy, too. Um, there's so many cards. There's a bunch. There's a bunch. Um the Discover It student card is the one I started with personally. I mean, it's they're all about the same, so it doesn't really matter um, for the first couple. So just buy it, put on your like Spotify, your Netflix, whatever. It's just one like very small gym payments, just yeah, something, recurring something things. recurring, and then go through, make it auto pay from your bank account, and that way you're like, I was already gonna spend that seven dollars anyways. Yeah. So I'm not gonna spend more money than I would on the credit card. I would highly suggest not to chase the big points thing like oh, i'm gonna get ninety thousand points if i spend four grand the first year that's that's definitely like has some validity to it but credit card companies spend a lot of money on their like uh systems to try and they have very smart people that just basically their whole job is to get you to figure out how to get you to pay the most amount of money on your credit card spend the most amount of money so don't fall into that trap um if you already like I spend this much a month in like first six months, I'm definitely gonna spend four grand. Then yeah, by all means take the extra like sixty thousand points or whatever they're gonna give you, but like don't just do that off the rip just to get the points. Like don't challenge. Don't chase points. I have to spend I got this, I'll spend five thousand dollars. <laughs> like like guys, I'll pay for our meal. Everyone just Venmo me back because I need the extra points. Like don't be doing that. Yeah. It's just like not a good financial strategy, I would yeah. say. That's what I think about credit. So credit is important. Yes, you should start early. I wish I'd started earlier, but do it in a very like low risk, very easy way. It takes like five minutes to get approved for a credit card. People send, get it sent, just set it up, put it in your drawer and forget about it. <laughs> 10 years from now, five years from now, whenever it is that you're like, you know, trying to get an apartment and you do run a credit check, buy a car, then you credit check, whatever it is that needs a credit check. It's important to have one just so like people know they can trust you with your money. Yeah, I sank sank in all that too. I got mine last year just because I was so bored because I was first semester business major that just had so much time (laughs) on my hands. I like it was like with my time apply for credit cards. (laughs) No, like that was one of the first things I did, and it it literally took like five minutes. And then it gets you think it's kind of gonna kind of be this complicated process, but then you just get the card in the mail set, and then it's so it's super super buy a easy. pack of gum a month like just yeah. buy the minimum bare minimum mm-hmm. on it and then in like five ten years from now you're gonna have like a huge credit limit they're gonna allow you to get like you know the higher perks higher statuses that's when it starts to make sense to actually look into the credit cards that actually can make more money i mean i don't buy anything with debit card now like i don't even carry a credit yeah. debit card i only carry credit because it's just like it's a 
it doesn't make sense to use debit yeah. in the long term. It also, but if you're not smart with your money, definitely don't use a credit card. Yeah. Also helps you track track your expenses too, right? Yeah. I mean, it's the same as a debit card pretty much. Like you can do it through yeah. your bank account. You, well, you could kind of isolate like, okay, I'm only going to spend entertainment on this card. And then that way it's kind of easier to see your uh, subsects, uh, subsects of uh, expenses Yeah. at that yeah. point. No, but. I think... Yeah, I got mine like four or five months ago. I haven't taken it out of my wallet like once. <laughs> like I have like a couple things on there. I have yeah. the I heard the auto pay thing from someone else. So I have um I think I have my Apple music on there. And yeah. that's something like, small. And I'll like use it on like a meal every now and then. Yeah. But that's about it. Like I never use it. Um, yeah, it's probably the right way to do it. Yeah. In the long term you'll be happy you did it. It's like yeah. such a simple thing that like over the long term is good for you. Should someone have their money in checking or savings accounts at this age? Once again, I would say it's not financial advice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you said not in checking or savings accounts? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I don't see a problem with it. What, okay. what else would you do? Well, I the reason why I was questioning that, I was going to add a little bit more to it. Yeah, it go just, ahead. A lot of people, including myself, like for my early years of just having money, I would literally just leave it in my savings or checkings account. Yeah. And I knew I wasn't going to use it. Just I was like, oh, like this is just going to be money to have. And well, at least for me, I do think that there's merit in having some of it in there. Like, I don't know, like $500 or whatever it may be. Just in case something happens, there's definitely a good argument to put it in money market funds or even just throwing it in the S&P where you are going to get. I mean, we talked about the S&P. But would you want to just touch a little bit on money market funds? Just a little brief explanation of what they are. Cause so you're basically saying how you should allocate your cash? A little bit, yes. So, okay. So, number one, like, definitely it's good to keep some cash in, like, a checking account or savings account just for, like, a rainy day, Peace right? Of yeah. If something happens, like, you want to be able to, like, yeah. buy it, like, fix the problem, right? So that's important, and it, it definitely gives you peace of mind. Um so for a lot of people, like that starts out with like, you know, the thousand dollars in the checking account, whatever it is, that's probably going to cover like the majority of most small, small expenses. Then you're going to want like three to six months of cash. And that cash, like you mentioned, can be hold, held in a money market fund. Um, a money market fund is basically a high yield savings account. It's like the easy way to think about it. It'll give you a little bit less month than a tre- like less APY than a treasury would. Um, so How I think recently, recently money markets have been at like the five, four and a half, five percent. So per year you'll make like 5% and mm-hmm. those fluctuate. So it's not like I'm going to get 5% and I leave it in there for, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to make 5%. No, it's like, it's a rolling number that's based off of like the 10 year treasury or it's like a couple bips below the 10 year treasury or whatever. Um, yeah, I said bips. And, uh, <laughs> I, I loved, I loved, I um, wouldn't know if it wasn't for Briggs. It makes me feel smarter. Okay. So I'm <laughs> yeah. doing my best. Um, Briggs is like, this is the slang term <laughs> for basis points. <laughs> um, so you, yeah, you'll make a little bit lower return than a 10 year treasury, but the treasuries, your money's locked up for a certain amount of time. Whereas a money market, it's like 24 hours. You can get your money out. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That, that was just the next question. How quickly could you liquidate? Yeah. 24 hours, basically overnight. You'd say one day I need it tomorrow. You can have it tomorrow. Basically. Okay. So it's not like it's pretty liquid, very, very liquid liquid enough for like anything that really comes up so i hold pretty much like a couple grand in a checking account just like peace of mind if i need to buy something whatever happens and then the rest the cash goes in a money market account or investments if it's something that like this is my investment money and like it's going to be a long-term investment stocks because it's give you higher return. But if it's a short-term money, don't put it in stocks because you learn, run into short-term re- investment risk 
which exactly. is like, you know, if the market goes yeah. down 20% and you needed that money for like your school bills, yeah, that's not good, yeah. right? So now you're down. Um, but in the long term, it'll be in, in all likelihood higher than it is today. You'll probably make returns. If you don't, then like, we're all screwed and the yeah. capitalism's yeah. ruined and like we're back to, I don't know. <laughs> there's bigger problems, you, there's, there's yeah. bigger problems yeah. you gotta worry about. Right. Yeah. Um, so we talk a lot about investing in like different ways. Um, one thing we want to talk about is like how your return on investment isn't always like a tangible amount. Um, yeah. Like imagine getting a $5 coffee from Starbucks every single day. Like obviously you could put aside that $5 every day and then you'd have more savings or you could get put a greater potential gain from this from something that might come from going to Starbucks. And obviously those benefits aren't always monetary. Yeah. Uh, here, you want to just give a quick little example? Um, yeah, sure. So like imagine um, I go to Starbucks every day, get my $5 coffee. Um, and one day I'm at Starbucks and someone sees me and like, we're just waiting for a coffee and we start talking and like they want to invest in something that I'm working on or like maybe they're at a position that I want to be in in 10 years and they become like your mentor or something. Like, that's obviously a gain that you wouldn't be able to get if you weren't at Starbucks that day. So, like, reflecting on that concept, have you ever, like, thought of a time where you may have, like, spent money on something that you could have set that money aside, but in the long run, it was, like, a good decision to spend that spend that extra amount of money? Uh, yeah, definitely. I, I think I understand where people are coming from when they, they have the whole, you know, $5 Starbucks coffee. I understand that um, because, yeah, it's $5 a day, $7 a day. It's getting to be over a year. That's like a couple grand, right? Like, yeah, if you add that up over 40 years and then you get 8% a year on that money, like it's going to add up to like a lot of money. But you could just take that forever and like (laughs) – I'm not going to spend money on anything. I'm not going to buy, you know, the groceries I want to buy. I'm not going to do <laughs> yeah. anything I'm because a hermit. every dollar is worth $80 when I'm 60. So now it's like, <laughs> oh, I'm spending $1 on this this water right here. That's going to be like, you know, $80. Like this is worth way more then. It's just a slippery slope of like what what actually is the monetary value of a dollar today versus a dollar when I'm 60, right? So like – it's different for everybody. People have different opinions on that and that's okay. And like the things that matter to each person is also going to be very different. Right. So like if coffee is very, very important to me, I could, you know, go get a $5 coffee or I could spend like 30 hours on TikTok learning about the direct, like the right way to make my cappuccino just perfect. And like (laughs) spend $2,000 on the right equipment. Like it's like that the three things I think that people, don't take into account when it comes or don't spend the right amount of money on in my opinion is like you said maybe the networking opportunities relationship building opportunities if you're putting yourself in a position to build a relationship with someone and you're looking at it from a financial like dollar amount that could be worth say i'm gonna go to a dinner and there's gonna be people there that i want to meet and it's gonna cost me money so i'm gonna stay home Uh, yeah i don't know so that's one thing that I think like uh, maybe you should focus a little more on. Next is like probably quality of life. Like you just have to take into account like the way I look at it is if the best thing to do, in my opinion, when it comes to spending money is take the things that matter a ton to you and spend more and more money on those. Take all the things that don't matter that much to you and spend as little money on those versus 
most people are like ever somewhere in the middle on all those things, right? They spend like a little bit of money here, a little bit of money there. They might be spending the same amount of money as the person that spends all their money on the one thing they really care about and not a lot of money on the things they don't care about. They might be spending a lot the same amount of money, but their quality of life is going to be much lower, right? So like finding things that actually matter to you, like say coffee is something that's really important to me. Spending more money on coffee and like my shoes don't really matter that much. I'll just buy like a basic pair of shoes and not spend like a bunch of money on like the newest Air Jordans or whatever. If this vice versa and I don't, don't care about coffee, then like, yeah, I shouldn't be going to Starbucks every day and buying a coffee. I should just make it at home. And I should be spending my money on Air Jordans because my quality of life is going to be like that much higher. I had a third thing. Um, but I'll, I'll just say one little quick thing on that is, I don't know, my grandpa said this to me once. Usually he's like a big like one-liner guy in puns. Yeah. But tell me once, it, you don't want to be the richest man in the graveyard. And yeah. that, that kind of... I mean, it was just like that one thing. I know I tweeted it. Aiden liked it. I'm like, oh, Aiden liked it. But I'm like, that's, what, that's when you know it's good, you know, yeah. if Aiden Murphy likes 100%. you. hundred percent. But that, that kind of hit me too because I was like working a lot and it was like just 24-7 and not spending a dime. And There's a time and a place for everything, right? Yeah. like hundred percent. I think the majority, I don't spend much, like, besides Chipotle, I don't spend really, <laughs> really any money. about Chipotle. Yeah. That's good. Spend more money on Chipotle. Yeah. You should go to Chipotle more, I think. <laughs> Amen. Amen. I don't really spend much on like going out or like going out to eat, but I dump a ton of money into like trips, yeah. which will be like, like yeah. tomorrow, like me, me and my friends are going to the Bears game. Yeah. And that's going to be a core memory for me. And I can see that in the future. And those experiences, I can justify just like dumping a ton of money of that. But like some new like Versace. Yeah. Like it's, Having yeah. clarity about the things that actually matter to you and then like spending your money. I mean, money is a tool, right? Like I said earlier, it's not like the end all be all. It's not like having an extra dollar in the bank account is going to make you feel better about yourself. Like it just doesn't. You might think it might, but it doesn't. Like after a certain point, like it's just a tool and like an extra zero or like whatever. doesn't matter. And like if I'm just buying, you know, the newest car so that I look better to the guy across the street, but I don't really actually care about the car, <laughs> then like what am I doing? It just doesn't make sense. And so having clarity about the things that actually matter to you and then spending money on those things is the right idea. To go back to your original question of like things that I've specifically spent money on that like at the time may have seemed like not the greatest financial decision but turned out to be an amazing financial decision, I'd say one of the main ones was any type of uh, personal development, anything. Anything I feel like I've spent on money on personal development has never really been wasted. Um, I mean, there's definitely been things I bought that, like, I didn't really get as much value as I thought I was going to get out of them. But it was still a good investment, just in the fact of, like, I'm investing myself psychologically. I'm putting resources into my own knowledge, my own learning, my own abilities. Um, and that's the, the one of the biggest examples of this is, was I spent – probably a year and a half considering buying this course um it was six hundred dollars at the time and i was just like this is like more money than i spent on anything <laughs> yeah i don't know like am i really gonna make it worth it is it is it really gonna be 100 percent? i would have paid three thousand dollars for that course i would have paid now i'd probably pay like 510 not that the course is that good but it's just that like even the smaller, it was around charisma, right? So, like, it was about being a more charismatic person. I was going to actually bring that up, yeah. like, with before you even So, started. literally, if I was 1% better at charisma and had a conversation with one person that liked me better than they would have otherwise and gave me a job, boom, 10 grand right there because I'm making 10 grand more at that job than I would somewhere else. 
return on investment 100 percent yeah and over the long term it's like those skills that you gain you'll have with you forever and no one can take that from you and so every day you use that even if you're like half a percent better one percent better at that if i'm one percent better at telling a story and it gets people one percent more captivated you know when it comes to selling something i'm gonna be one percent better one more every sale, day one more yeah. every day for the next you know 40 years that's a huge return right and it might not seem like okay that wasn't worth 600 bucks because like maybe i just learned one little thing you're right like when you look at something in a vacuum of like financially it might not make sense but if you had to look at a, something totality which is super hard because a lot of those things aren't tangible actual dollar amounts you can put to something and say yeah you know this is a great investment me buying Chipotle isn't maybe a great investment, but like, you know, if I saved 20 <laughs> minutes and I like had to go to a meeting and I wasn't late and like it made a good impression, you know, you can look at it any way you want. You could say like, the other thing is health. I mean, health is like a huge thing that's like very, very important to invest into. Like, you know, if you have a better bed that you can actually sleep well in, yeah, like- you sleep in every night, you're more rejuvenated, you're more, you just, first of all, you have a higher quality of life. Second of all, you're going to be more energetic and like, chasing whatever the deal is or something you know that's going to be better for you in the long term being like fit spending more money on gym membership whatever it is actually having a gym membership going to the gym (laughs) maybe wearing clothes that make you feel good when you're there so that you are more likely to go there those things really add up because in the long term you know your ability to like continue pushing through continue working getting out of bed playing with your kids it's going to yield huge dividends and while it might not be always be specifically monetarily, even just in the quality of life, that's important. And it's like kind of the cost of doing business. So it's important. It's funny how everything kind of gets distilled down so much that you, at least how the phases that I went through that I've talked with Austin and Casper about are at the beginning, like before like going to college, I just was going to college because everybody else was right. Yeah. And then my first semester, I spent all of it. Like, why am I here? Like, what am I, what am I gaining out of this? Right. Like, I'm thinking about what the price tag is and everything. I'm like, there's just no way that it's worth it. I'm going to go like make money in other ways. And then as first semester, like progressed. And also I think that's when I started to realize this as well as over the summer and the beginning of last semester, it's actually, if you really make, make it worth it it's so worth the price tag if you obviously there's so many other variables right but if you can afford it it makes so much sense just for those people that you meet and i think like the maturation to see everything a lot more holistically and like okay four dollar coffee but i i really like coffee i really hate it at home and like what if i i really like the people i see there there's that one person i i just i really like having them in my life and if i don't go who knows if i'm gonna see them anymore when you really start to like holistically understand everything, it just, it's uh it's interesting how you always feel like you know everything and then you really don't. Right. And there's always nuances to everything, right? Exactly. Like, this is not me saying spend more money on stuff. Like that's ridiculous. And it's also super easy to justify yourself. Like oh, I like that. So I should just buy it. Yeah. It's also <laughs> not the right way to look at it. Right. So like it, you have to know, am I the person that's going to tend towards, spending more money on stuff or am i the person that's going to spend like air towards being a tightwad and then you should probably get somewhere in the middle of those two right like you shouldn't just be spending all your money willy-nilly if you care about your financial future in in any capacity you also shouldn't like be a slave to money because then 
all the work you're putting in is for naught. And so what's the point? And so the long-term viability of your actual, you know, happiness and drive to continue working is not going to be there. And so if you become a slave to money, like if you use that money as a tool to get the things that you actually want and enjoy your life with that, then you're probably going to be more motivated in the long term to keep showing up every day at work, whether it's, you know, in your own business, if it's your investing, if you're working at a company, whatever it is that you're doing, you're probably going to have the more longer term drive and motivation if you're actually using your money as a tool. So coming in between those two extremes of like just spending your money willy nilly and like not spending your money at all and finding the places where you're actually best off spending that money. For me, it's like, you know, health, personal development, and then like quality of life. Like those three things are like a good place for me to spend my money personally. So if I spend my money on that, I'm going to have more, I'm actually enjoy working. Cause like, Oh, I, li- I like having money because I can use it for these specific things and it makes my life better. Yeah. It's important to find your balance of like, where am I getting my, where am I spending my money to get obviously monetary gains, but then also like the gains that actually make your quality of life better. Um, yeah, hundred percent. But I think we've, we've talked about a lot of, a lot of, a lot of things, right? When, <laughs> <laughs> how, how Jacob made his money, um, why why money's important the different ways of investing and how you kind of use those in your life and then obviously we ended on like more of a note of how money can help you in other aspects of your life but anything else you want to add in like the whole grand scheme of uh what we've talked about today uh first of all thanks for having me i appreciate it second time i'm honored i thought i blew it the first time so (laughs) thanks for having me the second time it feels good maybe i was not so bad the first time that's good uh Secondly, if someone made it this far in the episode, like props, because I said a we're, lot of we're going. spewed a lot of stuff. It's been a yeah. while. How long are we running for? A minute. Hour twenty one. A minute. <laughs> a minute. An hour, hour and twenty one minutes exactly. Yeah. So eighty minutes. That's a long time to listen to my voice. So <laughs> you're a trooper. First of all, yeah. second of all, I just say, um, I think the last thing I, I want to leave someone with is people can find themselves on the spectrum of being extremely stressed about money and like not caring at all about money. Um, and I think there's different times in life when you should, in my opinion, be farther towards one way than the other. Um, but if you're in college and you're at least thinking about these things, you're much farther ahead than 90% of the world. Um, you know, like if you're at, you know, a four year university, which most of your listeners probably are, right? you're doing well for yourself and like definitely make the most of that because it is a big investment. And like in any investment, like we talked about earlier, like there's things you can spend your money on. Like you can go to, to Starbucks and like maybe meet someone that will potentially invest in you. I mean, if you didn't meet the person, then like you might've had the $7 coffee and like you didn't actually get the thing that you went there to get. So you gotta like make the most out of each investment, whether it's like college or not. But I will say I spend a lot of time stressed about like, I need to make this much money. I need to do this. I need to do this next thing. And like, just in all reality, like you're ahead of 99% of the world. If you're able to attend a four year university, if you're going to get a job that's making like 50, 60 grand a year after college, if not more, some people make a lot of money after college. And so if you're thinking about this stuff now, you're way ahead of everyone. I would say just put into practice the smallest thing you can 
uh, whether that's like, you know, investing five bucks a month, 500 bucks a month, just understanding like, okay, while I'm in college, the, the most important thing is learning. So if you can at least like apply the smallest thing, have the smallest portfolio, maybe you trade single stocks now just to understand like what it's like to do those things. Just putting into practice the smallest thing. When you do start getting a big paycheck, say you're making two, three, four, five grand a paycheck. Now I've actually like understood tactically how to do those things. So I'm not learning at all when the stakes are high. When the stakes are low in college and you're like putting 500 bucks away like every couple months, maybe you're, it's just like a market tuition. You're just learning the market in public markets, whatever it is. And then like you're starting to build out your strategy understand yourself, how comfortable I am with risk, how much risk I want to take, all those different types of things. So just doing the smallest thing now will set yourself ahead, miles ahead of the other people, but also just understand that like you're already ahead, you're already doing great. And like, it doesn't really matter that much. Just like at least care about it a little bit and you'll be fine. Yeah. You don't have to be a hundred millionaire to be successful. Like and success maybe you want to be, too. maybe you want to be right. But like, that's not saying that's not a bad goal. It's definitely like, Maybe I have goals like that, but like, it's still understand that like, if you're providing for yourself and you're like caring about retirement at least a little bit, then they're like, you're good. Yeah, that's. You might want to be great, but like, good step to get there. Exactly, right? exactly. Yeah. yeah, that's something that's also been on the forefront of my head as well. Is like the average American is in debt, so the fact that we're at this age and we can see far enough into the future that we don't even have the majority of us don't really have many bills to pay. Yeah, And the fact that we can have a conversation like this of where to get ahead is something we should be grateful for in and of itself. Um, so, yeah, thank you for coming on again. Like, we really enjoyed it. Yeah. There was, like, so much value here, too. Dude, like, for – yeah. We – I mean, <laughs> I, I'm not a finance major, so, I mean, I get, I get a lot from it. So. <laughs> yeah, there we but, go. But even still, like, yeah, you understand the what. This definitely won't replace a finance degree, I'll tell you that. <laughs> We were we were talking about that the other day, um, and I, so I took <laughs> I took an investing class in high school. We can we can cut this out if we want, but yeah. um, I took an investing class like sophomore year of high school, and I was like telling him like when we were like making this doc, and I was like telling him some of the stuff. I was like, yeah, I know what this is, I know what that is. Like Roth is the one that doesn't get taxed, and you pull it out and all yeah. that. And he was like, honestly, you probably know like what do you, what what number did you say? I okay, don't, I don't want to like mess it up, but at least the way that I went. Okay, well, everybody's different in how much value they, because it's relative to how much value you extract from your degree, right? You could go through all your classes, kind of just do whatever on them and like just go for the grades and not really worry about the material. And you could pretty much walk away with very, like very minimal, very minimal understanding. So it is relative, right? But from what you were explaining to me and which how much you understood, it sounded like you knew about higher than 50 percent or we're familiar with higher than 50 percent of the stuff that i've learned so far most of the things you're gonna learn in college is very theoretical and not very practical and so like taking that and being able to apply it is like an important skill but also you're right like if you look at it just from a practical sense of like am i going to be able to invest in the stock market after i'm a finance major no (laughs) no you're no not really but like it gives you the tools to be able to to learn how to yeah tools and resources right so that's that's why after college is like a whole new learning process because you're actually learning how to apply those things that you learned in like a theoretical sense that like and you know some teachers are better than others and if you actually pay attention in class and know what a whack is or know what like a freaking <laughs> discounted cash flow is yeah. maybe it's more helpful but i mean and you'll definitely learn some good things but 
like you said, realistically, like if you listen to this whole podcast, you probably know like the terms at least. Yeah. And you understood it, and you'd probably know like the terms at least of what you're gonna learn in finance class. Yeah. You might not know how to do a discount cash flow or like a sensitivity analysis, but like. Yeah, <laughs> how much? It's all relative. You're also a sophomore, so you still got more to go. All your most important finance I, classes are later. Not really. Really? Well, because I... Oh, you took all of them already? Yeah. Well, Well, he's already ahead of the curve then. <laughs> Maybe you should have been paying attention instead of whizzing through them then. On this note, on this note, on this note, on this note, we will cut it here. Uh, thank you again. Uh, and for all of you guys listening, uh, have a great rest of your day, that rest of your night, whatever it may be.